This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. Hi, this is Mark Rako, the head of content and programming for Mouth Media Network and the producer of American Enough. Vikram Iyer and I had the opportunity to attend the 2018 Concordia Summit in New York City, adjacent to the United Nations General Assembly, and it was uh, a remarkable gathering of minds and diplomats from around the world. And Vikram had the opportunity to spend time discussing some very important topics with a number of very influential and important people. I hope you'll enjoy this remarkable discussion from the Concordia Summit. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. So we, in the month of September, we actually have two pretty unique updates and inflection points coming out of the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, First, we heard that uh, over the weekend, a new rule was put out, um, something called the public charge, um, in which those that were seeking uh, or that are seeking public assistance, things like SNAP SNAP benefits, um, uh, housing subsidies, and a whole bevy of other um, benefits that are built for those to access for their overall upward mobility. If they use them, it may count against them in broader determinations of immigration status. Separately this month, we also heard that the uh, numbers of children reportedly in detention centers at the border separated from their families actually ballooned from prior estimates in the couple thousands to now nearly uh, 12,000 or so. And with both of these inflection points, uh, you, Todd, as the executive director of Four.us, are no stranger to a steady drip of immigration news um, in this country and immigration policy that can be depicted by some as downright uh, heartless and cruel, uh, and yet uh, can be characterized by many as being exactly what the 63 million uh, Americans that, that voted for Donald Trump sort of sought in, in a, a robust immigration America first policy. As someone that sort of sat at the intersection of these conversations for a number of years now, how do you see in our kind of broader fabric of the country these immigration policy debates playing out? Are they actually sort of ripping away at these divisions that we knew to be true post-election? It's a lot to unpack there. Um, Let me take it at this way. Let's take a step back to... what do we know? You, you brought up a good point. What did 63 million people vote for? What does the president think? What do his immigration policy advisors think and want? And I think those are three different things. Um, I think if you look at what people voted for, you know, the number one determinative factor by a massive margin of why people voted for President Trump was because he's a Republican and they're Republicans. If you look at why did a certain subset of voters moved from Obama, Obama to Trump voters. Um, that's an interesting dynamic. Why did college-educated women, who seemed like maybe they were going to tip this for Hillary Clinton, not get this done, or college-educated men? And I think like you can cut the electorate a lot of different ways and ask questions. Um, but there's no question that you know from the 
91 seconds into the president's introduction to his campaign when he said that when Mexico sends its people here, they're not sending good ones, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. You can argue what he's talking about there. But this idea of, of race, not dog whistle race, but race and immigration, the inherent criminality of certain classes, that's been there from the beginning. I think when you fast forward to what does the president believe? He clearly has some strong views on immigration. He sees the wall as a political winner at times. Um, now, public opinion would show you that's not really the case. And in fact, most people who support the wall don't actually think it's going to happen. He talked during the campaign about deporting 11 million people. He talked during the campaign about how he would have a day one repeal of DACA. Um, and while that's been a huge animating feature of his presidency, that actually wasn't a thing that I think got as much attention. And clearly, if, I think if you look at what he did in the Republican primary, what he did in the general, and then what he has done as president, um, clear anti-sentiment uh, against Muslim immigration has been a big part of it. So that's the president. So, so you ask a good question about the public charge memo, about some of these other efforts here. I think it's important to distinguish between the president and some of the people around him, um, folks like Jeff Sessions and Stephen Miller, who uh, have a very clear policy agenda. That's not to say the president hasn't been incredibly effective or impactful. He has on these issues. But there's a difference between the kind of political rhetoric that he allows others to implement and a policy agenda. So what is that policy agenda and what unites these things? Well, number one is this idea that we should have drastically fewer immigrants. This isn't a question of like, you know, do I think they like immigrants or not? The stated goals of folks like Jeff Sessions and um, people around him is to radically restrict immigration. That's right. Not 10 or 20 percent. 50, 75, 80, 90 percent. You hear terms like we should have a pause on all immigration. We should make um, all green cards just paused for a second and visas should be non-renewable. You know, that means you're going to not give any green cards. No one can become a citizen for, for 10 years. I mean, we have never seen that sort of kind of huge rollback. So number one uh, is a preference to radically restrict all immigration levels. Um, two... Um, clearly a focus on ramping up uh, deportations of the undocumented. Three, a focus on making life hard for immigrants who are here today, whether that's people here who are here illegally, uh, whether it's people who are, are here legally on this public charge memo, which says, you know, at some point in the future, we may make it a lot harder for you to become a citizen. We may not, but we may, based on a series of uh, res subjective restrictions. And so when you tie those things together, cutting overall immigration numbers, making life hard for people who are here, pushing out as many or as possible, that's the common theme that we see. Um, and from time to time, the president gets mad because he doesn't like where that leads him. He did not like the bad press on family separation. He did not like the bad press on DACA repeal. But I think that's what unites um, – just a long answer, but that's what unites those things. And one thing that's interesting about – Normally, for, for, for those that, are, that have not heard of Forward.us before, it's a national immigrant advocacy organization that um, has worked across partners. You've not only um, you know, engaged this administration, prior administrations, you've engaged members of Congress, you've done community organizing, you've worked with technology companies and private companies to raise awareness of various things like uh, DACA registration deadlines for Dreamers and, and, and infinitely more conversations than that. But of all those conversations, it seems like the, the steady drip of immigration pivot 
that pivoting that we were doing as a country is, as you said, contained among a handful who have this worldview and are advising the president in this way, and they manifest themselves in these executive well, actions. You bring up such a good point, which is we are really any way you test an immigration question. Should there be a pathway to citizenship for the undocumented? Should we have more or fewer immigrants? Are immigrants helpful or hurtful to the country? We are not only on an upward trajectory, but we are at an all-time high, by, by a lot. Um, and at the same time, the small number of people, and it is a small number of people, um, who are kind of running immigration policy for the United States have historically been way outside the mainstream. I mean, I, this is not a uh, subjective assertion, but when Jeff Sessions was a United States senator, he was really seen as a huge outlier, as someone who was dedicated to slashing legal immigration as much as possible. And so this is a real contrast here where you see the public uh, much more active on these issues. Uh, you know, there was a huge comprehensive immigration reform push in 2006 and seven. There was one in 2013. You didn't see anywhere near the kind of public outcry that you've seen um, against the Trump administration's efforts to repeal DACA, to, to take away children from their parents at the border. Um, I don't think that's a partisan thing. I think there's more bipartisan consensus that people want to give it credit for. It just is a small number of people who are in real positions of power, and we should be very clear about that, um, have very different views than um, kind of where the public is overall. And, and that, you know, in some respects, some would argue that this is how our American republic, our democracy works. You go through a rigorous and spirited election, and then you appoint a team and staff of advisors, and then that steers policy. However, as someone that leads an adequacy organization that uses every lever at its disposal to kind of enact and push for the change or the legislation or the regulatory frameworks that you value, it's often that we would go to Congress mm -hmm. to try and seek comprehensive immigration reform. Right. In this instance, though, because so much of it is happening through executive power and executive authority, I'm curious to hear your perspective on two things. Sort of one, how do you think this is changing the sort of fabric of American immigration policy when it is contained among a few, as you said? And then two, as someone that leads an advocacy organization, does that then mean that it is important for you to focus your efforts on courting those individuals within the administration? Or since their mind's already made up, is there another lever you need to start pulling at? Yeah. So this question of executive power is an interesting one. And then personally, I think that it is pretty clear that the executive has a high degree of authority and power on immigration policy as granted under the law. Um, and it was not that long ago that it was people like Jeff Sessions and Republicans in Congress, folks like Chairman Goodlatte, who screamed bloody murder when President Obama, uh, through an executive order, uh, expanded the Deferred Action Program for Childhood Arrivals. It had previously covered about a million dreamers. Um, to a broader population, including the parents of U.S. citizens. This was the DAPA case. It was ultimately deadlocked in the Supreme Court, and it did not go into effect. It would have helped 5 million people. Um, at that time, uh, there was this huge support for nationwide injunctions. This was wonderful news, according to Breitbart and, and uh, Chairman Bob Goodlatte and folks like that, saying it's great that there's this nationwide injunction to keep this Obama executive amnesty away from us. Now, it's interesting. And you have seen, as a lot of these nationwide injunctions have come out to say, the manner in which the president attempted to do DACA repealed, attempted to do uh, the travel ban, 1.0 and 2.0, a lot of other immigration actions, 
have clearly been unlawful in the way they've gone about this. Um, all of a sudden, uh, people who previously had been big fans of both courts stopping the president from doing this, but had been really opposed to uh, an administration making immigration policy or implementing it without Congress, they've totally flipped on that. And I think that's important to point out the hypocrisy on this. Um, there is no good workaround to Congress, though. You hear, you yep. mentioned the technology sector. You have people talk about disrupting things and hacking <laughs> things. There are 11 million people who are here. They are undocumented. The way that you help those people get a process that they can go through to earn legal status, the way that you fix a legal immigration system in a real way so that we have an immigration system designed for the 21st century instead of one that was designed you know, in the middle of the 20th century is by Congress acting. And so ultimately, um, people need to elect officials and put pressure on officials, and that's our job to help, so they get good policy outcomes. And part of the, the politics around Congress, um, you've observed this very closely uh, in Washington, D.C., there was a kind of a almost nationally uh, focused moment where there was a deal famously photographed being talked about in the Oval Office where you had um, Senator Chuck Schumer from New York. You had, I believe, Pelosi uh, nearby, and you also had President Trump talking about some legislative priorities. But the conversational breakthrough of that meeting, as reported, was that there was a fix for uh, doc yep. protections for dreamers. And yet... It doesn't seem like in the chorus of daily headlines that we hear much about that, at least from congressional leaders that were once pushing for it. What's happening? Yeah, I mean, here's what happened. The president repealed DACA. He got yelled at in the press a lot. He didn't like it. He tweeted something like, Congress, dot, 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 DACA. I'm not, like, enunciating the president's tweets well. But um, <laughs> at some point uh, between... That happening, the president decided he wanted a deal. He sat down with uh, a lot of people, but uh, Leader Pelosi, Leader Schumer were there. And basically they said, like, we will work out a deal with you for increased border security, including wall funding, which you claim to want, in exchange for legal protections for dreamers. Now, this is a really good deal. No one gets everything they want. 80% of Americans can say, I like, that's better than the status quo. This is how it should work. We should be very clear what happened then and a couple times after is advisors who want, and folks like Senator Tom Cotton, mm -hmm. who want to only give DREAMers legal status if it comes with massive cuts to legal immigration, cuts unlike we've ever seen except for the racial quota laws of the 1920s. They're only going to use DREAMers as bait to get what they want. And, you know, they are folks who are close to the president. Um, ultimately, Congress in the Senate after a government shutdown, part of which had to do with this issue, came up three votes short. Uh, and I think really what it comes down to is this. Uh, we have an election coming up. I think the Democrats will make gains. I think that uh, when you look at not Latin, just Latino voters and Asian American voters, people think about as immigration voters, but college-educated white voters, particularly college-educated women, they look at what is coming out of the Trump administration in terms of the chaos and the cruelty of family separation and DACA, and they see it as a both wrong and a distraction from what the country should be focused on, which is, uh, in addition to immigration policy, more affordable health care. They see it as the, this is cruel and chaotic to distract us from the fact that that tax cut didn't help me that much. That's what we see in polling data. And people are frustrated, and they want 
smart leaders who actually do real bipartisan solutions. So Ford.us has been focused on an array of matters, mm -hmm. everything from H-1B visas to Docker renewals. Yep. What are you going to be focused on moving forward? We think that after the election, there will be a renewed opportunity and an effort um, to help dreamers through congressional action. We think there are improvements to our high-skilled immigration we'd like to see. Whether or not that is protecting against um, cuts to legal immigration, there's what's called the H-4 rule, which For gives spouses, spouses of 100,000 spouses of H-1B workers. They have the right to work. It is being stripped away. That's absolutely wrong. Um, we would like to continue to see improvements to our high-skilled immigration system. Um, we would like to continue to see smart improvements to border security. That's not a 2,000-mile wall. It is certainly not mm. taking children away from their parents. Um, and ultimately, um, and I think we are further away from this than we would like, Congress needs to come together with a broad framework that does really three things. Number one, creates a modern legal visa system. Again, we have a, we have a legal visa system that was designed in the 1950s and the 1960s for the most part. Um, that absolutely makes no sense for today's global economy and doesn't make sense for today's families. Number two, we should continue to make smart improvements in border security so that we're ensuring people come here legally in the future. Um, making sure people come legally in the future also means those legal avenues have to be available for them to do it. And the third thing is we should change the law. And for the 11 million people who are here, they're undocumented. They've been here on average about 15 years. The, the years where the majority of them came, um, the top four years are all in the 1990s. This is a uh, population that's been in this country for an incredibly long time. We should change the law. They should be able to go through a process where if they can pass a background check, they learn English, pay back taxes and fines, they can spend you know, a period of time, 8, 10, 12 years, getting right with the law and ultimately earning citizenship. That's fair. That's a bipartisan approach. And if we pair those things together... We can deal with the solutions that we need for today, and we can make sure people come here legally in the future. And we sort of gather on the heels of an incredible worldwide convening event, the UN General yep. Assemblies happening in New York, where you have institutions from across the world getting together to talk about shared priorities, shared challenges as well. And it's sort of startling to me that as all these countries convene uh, on U.S. soil, um, there are also representatives here, whether they uh, represent countries with refugees, they represent countries that may otherwise be otherized by this yep. uh, vitriolic uh, rhetoric here in the States. Uh, we're doing it at a point where the country is sort of standing up to the world and making this declaration that the give us your tired, give us your hungry, your poor mantra seems to be diluted. From a big picture perspective, as someone that's been close to immigration policy, but also the tangible impacts it has on people, what does this current state of play say about America's identity? You know, I think about it a little bit different, which is, like, what's best for America and Americans who are here today? And if you look back to the last 100, 120, 150 years and prior to that, that America has been the kind of top destination around the world for not just, like, people who are rich in some country or top performers, but for people who are willing to take a risk to build a better life for themselves and their family— that has been an amazing benefit, truly, really our, our one unique benefit, but an amazing benefit to people who are in the United States already. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, today, whether or not that is the fact that we have the best university system in the world, that means that we have the best cancer research in the world. That means we're creating jobs here. Um, whether we're in New York right now, 
the fact that New York City, and people don't think about this as a job creator, but the fact that New York City is a fashion hub in New York requires, one, that people can come from all around the world, and two, it means that having an immigration system that allows for that. Now, what does that mean? That means that there's 214,000 people in New York City who are employed in the fashion industry. The overwhelming majority of those people aren't actually like international superstar models. I'm sure they're lovely people too, but what happens is like if you create America as a place that the best and the brightest will come through, and people who just are willing to risk so much, that helps all of us. And when we leave that behind, that hurts our economy, um, and it does hurt our identity. Because if we become a nation that's not united by ideals, if we become a nation that is not about aspiring to be better than we are today, um, and we become a nation that defines ourselves by, um, by blood and soil, but defines ourselves by race and, and who, we used to, who we think we used to be, because it's not actually who we were, we're all going to be worse off because of it. Todd Schulte, Executive Director of Forward.us. It's not lost on any of us that the work you and your organization are doing to keep that American promise happening and revving along um, is, is really changing the course and helping maintain the course of this country. So thank you for that. Thanks for having me. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.